Good morning, church. It is good to be back. Um, I love church so much. And, uh, and you know, it's before I start, I got a little rabbit trail just because I can because I have the mic. Um, you know, the beautiful thing, I, you know, I, we come to, to church, but we are the church, right? So the beautiful thing about coming here to worship all together is, is the numbers, right? The numbers, the unity, the gathering to be together. Um, but you don't stop being church when I say, all right, you're dismissed, and you're thinking about the tacos on the way home or whatever. Um, you're still the church, and, and throughout the week, you still need to do church, right? Um, we should be constantly involved in the building up of each other, uh, using our gifts to serve one another. Um, and I love you, church, all the rest of the week, and I love coming here to church to sing with y'all. This is just such a special, special, beautiful time of the week. Um, and, and one of the reasons why it's so special is you guys. So thank you for being wonderful. Um, I love worshiping with y'all. This is just great. Um, Matt is, 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 is injured, and, uh, and that is super sad. Um, but for every cloud, there's a silver lining. And I get to deliver to you guys some of, some of what we've been learning in Haggai. Uh, we've been going through Haggai on Wednesday nights at Restoration um, some of the post-exilic minor prophets went through Haggai. We're going to start Zechariah, and then we're going to do Malachi. And, and, I, and I love it because, uh, for a lot of reasons, but I love that God led Matt to preach in Daniel, and God led me to preach in Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So we have exilic prophet, so prophet Daniel preaching to uh, the people while they're in exile, while they're in captivity. And when they come back is when Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi uh, have their messages for the people from God. And so we see the kind of the after, the after. So go ahead and open up Haggai 1. Uh, and while you're doing that, I was thinking of this story last night as, as I was finishing up the message. And I usually, I usually do that with Sarah around. You know, my Saturday night um, f- finishing touches is usually Sarah's around and I and I bug her a lot. You know, I, I do like little mini sermons to her, and it helps me like get thoughts out, but also she's got really good advice. Sometimes she says, babe, that didn't make any sense at all, and I really appreciate that especially because I want to make sense to y'all. But as I'm thinking about the themes of what's coming up here and human nature, this story, uh, when Judah was just a little over one, uh, he was walking but not really talking much, and he talked really early even though he walked I, I'm kind of on time, a little late, but uh, we were snacking before bed. It was evening. I was cutting strawberries because, uh, you know, strawberries, right? Strawberries, so good. I don't need to tell you that, but this is really important to the story. So I, uh, we, we always try to give our kids the next step, you know? So like, what can they handle next? Like, what's the next little thing they can do? And so we were working on serving others, serving others. It's a lifetime pursuit. We got to get better at it all the time. And it's really hard, always, 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 always serving others and laying down your own self. Uh, so I gave him a strawberry and says, go give this to mom. <laughs> he gives me a nod and a smile. He's happy to have something to do. He turns around, takes a step, and puts it right in his mouth. It's like, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. He was going to get some anyway. This is all right. This is all right. And I was like, oh, no, Judah, that was for mama. And, and he looked, and he had the wide eyes. Like, all right, let's try it again, bud. So I give him a little slice of strawberry. He turns around and takes two steps right in his mouth. Um, strawberries are good. And this is like a one-year-old kid. 
So we tried again, and he, and and you could you could see he's kind of he's working really hard. It was it was adorable to see the amount of effort this little toddling one year old was putting into serving his mom, and how much he realized how like how incapable he knew he was to deliver the strawberry. <laughs> He got the next strawberry. He made it halfway there before he ate it, and he was turning around as he ate it with like a panic look in his face. And and of course, I'm not getting onto him. He's like, oh, this is expected. This is expected for a one-year-old not to be able to share strawberries. They have it in their hand, and they've got to walk from, I don't know, probably it's not that far. We lived in a shoebox. Um, it, it was probably from here to here, and and he couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. So I gave him another one, and he got even further before he ate it. And so finally, finally, we gave him, gave him another strawberry. And at this point, it was like, okay, this is the last strawberry he's allowed to have because uh, that's just too much. Too much. Uh, so this is like his last chance. And we were, again, really encouraging. But this time, we cheered him on the whole way through. It's like, come on, Judah, you can do it. You can do it. Bring it to mom. Bring it to mom. Bring it to mom. Bring it to mom. And he made it, and he was just so happy. Um, I think we ended up giving him another strawberry just because it was exciting. Uh, but, <laughs> but that's just, there's a lot of the, the human elements that we all struggle with and we all always struggle with that were present in that, in that little moment. And, uh, and so, uh, incidentally, I, and I didn't plan it this way necessarily, but I'm going to use my little toddler son to shame us all this, this morning. <laughs> I mean, good-natured, good-natured, of course. Before we get into it, let me pray um, and, uh, and let's, let's read. Father God, I thank you so much for the example you give us in children. Jesus, when you walked this earth, you used kids to teach us about faith. You used us to teach us about ourselves. Even as adults, we, we need to remember childlike faith in you, where we believe what you say simply because of who you are. You are our Father. You say this, and so we believe it and we do it. And I pray that we have that same absolute faith in you as we hear from your word today. I thank you so much for all of your word, which instructs us, your Old Testament, which, uh, which showed how you dealt with your people over, over time and how you loved them and reminded them of your promises and kept their focus on Jesus to come. And I thank you for the New Testament, which tells us about our freedom we have because Christ has come. And what he accomplished on the cross and in the empty tomb has freed us forever, God. And I thank you that while we still struggle with sin and while we still need to repent daily and while we still will be longing for the completion of our salvation as we meet you in heaven, God, that there's still no condemnation for those who are in you. I thank you for your powerful grace that cannot be defeated, not by us or any others. And I thank you for your powerful love that will never be rescinded. Thank you, God. We love you. And we want to learn from you today. So please get me out of the way. And uh, don't let a single word of mine escape. But every word that I speak from you is from you and for these people here, God. We want to feast on your word this morning. So please, God, set the table well. Amen. When was the last time you guys read through Haggai? Probably a while, right? It had been a while for me before I dug into it. Uh, and, oh my goodness, this is, this is good. It's not like mining for gold. It's like if a gold truck spilled on the highway and you got to just scoop it up in your arms. Haggai, oh my goodness. Some people wait for a whisper from the Lord or a hint or a nudge. He is yelling at us, yelling at us from his word. And I felt him. And, uh, and Haggai yelling to us, and not just for the time, but for all times. Haggai 1. Let me read it for you, and, uh, and then we'll get into some of the background and, and dig in. In the second year of 
Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. This people says the time has not come, even, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You, um, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house which lies desolate, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Hmm. Now, uh, I don't know enough Hebrew to parse out this uh, verse 15 and whether or not that was on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king, if that was... Um, you know, 23 days after the first part or not. So we're just going to like leave that there for a while. The timeline gets a little muddy there and I heard dis disparate ideas from different commentators. So let's just leave verse 15 on the table and let God have a clear grasp of the timeline. Uh, it doesn't have any didactic purpose for us right now. But let's get a little background. So we know that uh, we're going through Daniel. We know that the people have been conquered. They were conquered because of their idolatry, because of their sin, because they didn't submit to the, to, the, to the rule and reign of the Lord God. They disrespected him, and it was grievous. And he told them it was going to happen. He told them it was going to happen. He told them how long it was going to happen for, and he told them uh, what was going to happen after. These people were conquered. Uh, the opening date in verse 1 uh, mentions uh, Darius the king. This isn't Darius the Mede. This is uh, from like Daniel. This is later Darius the Persian. Uh, and so this is, this is a different Darius than we're talking about in Daniel. Because this is, the this, this story takes place um, 16 to 18 years after they get back. Uh, this is a different Darius. But it tells us really clearly exactly when this happened. I love that. I love, like in Luke. The Gospel of Luke is so filled with facts. You can fact check that thing and it holds up, which I love. But the formula places Haggai's prophecy on August 29th. 520 BC. I love the precision. I love that. But this is the first, the first day of the sixth month, which is in the Jewish calendar, uh, the month of uh, Elul. Elul. Elul comes before Tishri. And the first 10 days of Tishri are Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. It's the, it's the, feast, that, the feast that leads up to Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. 
This is, a, this is taking place the month before uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's, it's uh, between the different harvests, after the crane and grain and corn, um, kind of during the fruit tree harvest, and it's kind of right in the middle of all the different crop harvests happening there. Uh, and again, this is leading into, this is a month before Rosh Hashanah, one of the prescribed annual feasts. It was 10 days of repentance, introspection, feasting, sacrifices, blowing of horns, culminating in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was called the Sabbath of Sabbaths, where the beginning of Rosh Hashanah, you don't work. And on Yom Kippur, you absolutely don't work. You absolutely don't work. That was the one day of the year where the high priest would enter the temple into the Holy of Holies and make a huge, significant sacrifice for the entire people, including a sacrifice for the sins they didn't even know they committed. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, crucial. But there's no temple. There's no temple. It had been destroyed. And over a decade prior, when they got there, they built the walls. We know that story. Ezra and Nehemiah, they were crucial. The people had faith in God as they built. They built with a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other to protect what they were doing. They built the walls of Jerusalem so that there wouldn't be a reproach, a reproach on the city and a reproach on God. And then they started building the foundations of the temple, and they got pressured. They got pressured from other nations. They got pressured from the people who were living there, because when they left, there was just a bunch of really good land there. And so some people moved in. Uh, they were gone for like 70 years. So other people moved in. They're like, hey, this is great, great land. We're going to live here now. And the locals provided pressure too. Nobody wanted that temple built except for God, and initially his people. And so now we're 16, 18 years later, and the foundation of the temple is disorganized stones and good intentions left to molder. <clears throat> so, we're here. Oh, another point, really important. Like God mentioned, through Haggai, uh, they had been going through a drought for a long time. They were struggling on their return to make ends meet, to get stuff to grow well, Anything they did, everything they, everything they did was under that drought. The works of their hands, their animals, their crops, the wine, everything. Everything was, was under the effects of this drought. And so they're looking forward to, they got a month uh, from, this, from this moment, they got a month before the, one of the high holy days. And they don't have a lot. They don't have a lot. They don't have a lot for the feasts. They don't have a lot for the sacrifices. The first set of harvests this year were rough. And uh, they're probably looking forward to the rest of the harvest with a little bit of trepidation. Not sure uh, if everything's going to pan out. You know, we had, we had tomatoes growing and then the smoke hit and our tomatoes didn't do so well. <laughs> Some of y'all are great, have green thumbs. Uh, we got three toddlers, or three little kids. So um, our tomatoes died during the smoke, and, and so we had these like hard, green, nasty. I can imagine the people looking forward to that kind of thing. They're like, well, we got a tomato off this plant. <clears throat> they would have had time to consider the quantity and quality of their harvest thus far, and this wouldn't be the first Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur of their drought. They were probably thinking of 
Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 10, the words of Moses written beforehand for the time when they were done with, uh, with the exile. Let me read it for you. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the end of the earth, from there the Lord God will gather you and there he will bring you back. And from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. Then your Lord, the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand and the offspring of your body and the offspring of your cattle and in the produce of, the, of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you will turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Now, part of that is absolutely a salvific property, uh, pro, uh, prophecy talking about the, when Jesus came and completed that fully. Circumcised in the heart, where we, in our hearts, are set apart and changed. But absolutely part of this is talking about the people post-exilic. And I can imagine they were probably remembering that. Moses was kind of a big deal to them. So what went wrong? They're back. They're back in the land. What went wrong? Did God's word fail? How much longer would they have to wait to get the blessing? They are struggling to make ends meet. They're struggling to put food on the table. Where are the blessings of God? After struggling to get by for years and years and years, wondering what happened to the promises of God, Haggai receives a message from God for Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. And why these two? These two people led the people of God in faith and life, the religious and the civic, the eternal and the temporal. These two people worked together to act out the laws of God, which were not just religious, moral laws of God, but also civic laws of God. This is really, really important that the message of God came to these two for the people because they first needed to hear this message. They first needed to believe and change for this. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord, the time has not come even for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. It's what the people said. God knows what the people's hearts are and he's calling them out on it. Saying, you're saying it's, the people are saying it's not yet time to build the temple. It's been 16 years. When is it time? They've had time, harvest after harvest, to have disappointing crops. They've had time, year after year, to have disappointing wine. They've had time, year after year, to have fewer and fewer animals being, being born and surviving. They've had time, year after year, to, not, to, be, to be wondering where their money's going. They've had time, year after year, to walk past the moldering ruins of the temple that still has yet to be rebuilt. They've had time. They've had years and years and years to worry. They've had years and years and years to work on their own. It's because paneled houses. These are 
These are sturdy houses. They've had time to build sturdy houses for themselves. They've had 16 years. Now, we can read between the lines a little bit here because they're people. People are people and sin is sin. Let's speculate wildly here for a minute. Why? Why is it not time? I don't think it's a stretch to think that fear of the opinion of others is part of why they are not rebuilding the temple. That's why they stopped in the first place. It's reasonable to assume that uh, fear of homelessness or hunger is probably leading some of that. If I go to work on temple, I can't go to work on food for my family, believing that they're the ones that provide for their family and it's not God that does it. False. <laughs> Just to lay it out there. Jesus said, you don't have to worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the rest, rest will be added to you. You don't provide for your family. God does. You work to be faithful to God. You work to do what's set before you to do. But God puts food on your table. God puts money in your pocket. They forgot that. They thought it was them. As if they can control the weather. As if they can control the seeds. As if they can control the pests. As if they can control all these things. As if it was really them. I'm sure they, uh, they struggled with the desire for comfort, shelter, warmth, security. And I'm sure there are more there, but already we, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're with me here that we can see reasonably knowing our own hearts what they struggled with. Nothing's new under the sun. People are people and sin is sin. And they're struggling with idolatry. Regardless of the, of the reason why, they turn there, they are absolutely struggling, struggling with idolatry. And then for the sake of clarity, let's, let's define idolatry. Simply put, it's the worship of someone or something that is not the true creator God. That's it. It's worshiping something else besides the one true God. Idolatry. What is worship? For the sake of clarity, worship is the valuing or treasuring God above all else. That's what worship of God. It's valuing or treasuring something. That is worship. Now, worship is expressed, just like everything. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things are all expressed. Otherwise, can you be said to, have re to really have it? They're expressed. And so, worship is expressed. A heart of worship is expressed in word and deed. So, how do we worship God? Singing is one way, absolutely. But to call singing worship narrows worship. Singing is worship, but worship isn't just singing. It's like the square rectangle thing. That confuses grade schoolers all over the world. <clears throat> Worship is always expressed. The proof is in the pudding. Jesus taught in Matthew 15 that doing acts of worship without the heart of worship is vanity. It's meaningless. It's like stapling good apples to a dead apple tree, right? But true worship in spirit and truth, it comes and produces real living good fruit of acts of worship. So that absolutely can be singing, for sure. Romans 12 teaches us that obedience to Christ, loving others, these things are a spiritual act of worship. So you can worship God as you weed your garden at home. You can worship God as you wash dishes. Men, when you go to put something in the dishwasher and you see that it's full and clean, you can worship God by loving and serving your wife by putting those dishes away. <clears throat> I know it's... It's a, that's a hard one. It's easy to just close it up and put it on the counter and walk away. <laughs> it is that putting aside 
what you want for what God wants. It is seeking to glorify him by loving and obeying Jesus. That is like the mission statement of our church. To glorify God by loving and obeying Jesus. Worship. And absolutely can't come out and singing. We worship in a lot of ways here on Sunday mornings. We sing. Uh, we encourage each other and pray for each other. We pray for others. Uh, we hear the reading and the teaching of the word. Uh, we, we worship in a lot of ways. But I'm going to tell you right now, if, if, if the only time you worship is on Sunday morning during this hour and a half, you're missing out. You're missing out. We are supposed to be living sacrifices. We're supposed to be a Christian everything, not just a Christian church attender. We're supposed to be a Christian everything. Worship and idolatry. We are made to be worshipers. We are made to worship God, but what happened when sin came? It broke that relationship. And a dead person can't do anything. A dead person can't worship God. A dead person can't produce good fruit. A dead person can't have a heart of worship because they have a dead heart. <clears throat> You know, we have a distinct advantage being in the new covenant because we have the Holy Spirit that helps, that God is always, always with us. The people had a much more tangible uh, relationship. Do you remember when Achan sinned against God by keeping stuff and God's presence left the camp because of the sin was there? Um, but even though we have the Holy Spirit, even though we have a new heart, we still struggle with idolatry, don't we? Just like they do. They're in the city of God. They're in, they're in the walls of Jerusalem. Um, and they're still struggling with idolatry. God had brought them out of uh, captivity, brought them away from exile. He'd used a pagan king to, uh, to, to initiate this. He's like, hey, you guys got to go back. Let me, let me pay your way to go home. And let me pay. Let me pay for the rebuilding of the temple for you. So the price of all of this wasn't coming out of their own pockets. It was coming from the Persian king, who they were still under, which is why Zerubbabel, even though he was from the Davidic line of kings, wasn't a king, he was a governor. Um, these people still struggle. And even us, who have the Holy Spirit in us, who have new life in him, who have no chance of having that gift removed, struggle with idolatry when we give our affections to something that's not Jesus, right? It's not a big leap. To, to read what they're doing and make assumptions why, right? We feel that. We feel that. See, the problem with them is, the problem with them at this moment is centered on their worship. They're worshiping something other than God. Their comfort, people's opinions, their own bodies, and it's apparent by the way they are living. Like I said, the proof is in the pudding. What is inside will come out. Will come out. They're eating and drinking. They're getting dressed and working. They're sowing and harvesting. But they're not building the temple. Their idolatry was marked by their actions and their negligence. They didn't bow down to a gold calf. Instead, they worked on material, material security and comfort. And so the Lord God tells them to consider their ways. Consider your ways. Now, he's not, he's not commenting on the varietal of grape they grew. He's not commenting um, on, uh, on the, the architecture of their homes. He's not commenting on, on these physical things first. That comes. That's part of it. That's part of it. He's telling them, check your heart. Check your heart. Consider your ways. Look at yourself. What path are you on? Where are, your he where are you headed? What is your heading? 
Examine the path you have chosen. God is calling them to, to truly consider the path they're on. He then tells them to get wood for his temple. The command has three express purposes. One, to build the temple. Uh, rim shot. Uh, but, but he expresses two right here. To please God and to glorify him. To please God and to glorify him. This should be the reason why they do this. He's telling them clearly, build my temple. And the reason he's saying it is to please God and to glorify him. God wants them to, be, to have right worship restored to the people. It is good for them. Because it's only when we live to please God and glorify him when we ever find satisfaction. Because that's what we were created to do. A fish may have a lot of material freedom if you place it on your table. You know, you take your goldfish out of the bowl, he can explore the entire apartment now. He's not just stuck in the bowl. But only the fish only has freedom to live when he's in the water, right? We are fish, and our water is the worship of the one true God. Only when we are swimming in those waters can we ever be truly satisfied. Only then. Idols do not satisfy. The people forgot. The temple displayed that God has made a way for sinful men and women to dwell in the presence of a holy God through a blood sacrifice and the ministry of a high priest. That's just the gospel right there, right? Who's our new high priest? Jesus Christ, once and forever. What is the new temple? It's us. Don't you know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit? And that you in 1 Corinthians 6 is, is y'all. It's humes. It's plural. It's y'all. It's not just one person. Y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, God hit something really important here. You know, he, he, talks, uh, he talks about how they looked for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. He wants them to see, truly see, and feel, and notice, and be able to measure the fact that idols don't satisfy. They can't. They're dead. They can't. They're, they're inert. They got nothing to do uh, except um, it's like salt water. You got a thirst. You turn to salt water, you're just going to be more thirsty. Your heart is made to worship. You're going to worship an idol. You're just going to be more thirsty. Romans 1 explains it really well that that pattern, 1 and 2, that pattern of sin and worshiping idols just leads to more sin and worshiping idols because you're chasing after a moving target. Well, not even a moving target, a, a fugazi. It's just a, a nothing, a, a mist, a vapor. It's a, it's, a, it's a mirage. You're struggling in the desert after that mirage, that pool of water that's just on the horizon, and it's always just on the horizon. God gave them the drought for their benefit, to show them their idolatry and to teach them for their own good that idols can't satisfy you did this. You put money in your pocket with a hole in it. He's saying, I did that. I blew it away. You gathered and I knocked it over. It's like my kids building towers at home. Everly will come. As soon as you get two blocks stacked on one another, Everly's going to come smash it. That's just the age she's in. That's what God is doing. They're building something. He smashes it. Why? He doesn't want them to try to continue to be satisfied by their idols because it's not going to work. That's not good for them. And he is a loving father. You've sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's never enough to be satisfied. Even when you drink, there's not enough to become drunk. 
put on clothing, you're not warm. You earn wages, you put it in a pocket with a hole in it. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies in ruins, while each of you runs to his own house. Clear, clear as day. You are worshiping something other than me. Isn't that what got them into that mess in the first place? Isn't that why the temple's destroyed? Isn't that why they're a remnant? Just a cut off bit of a whole cloth? Just a remnant? Hebrews 12, 11 says this, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Consider your ways. He says it twice, before and after this message. Consider your ways. And they did. He spanked his child like a loving father. And they responded. I just love it when a plan comes together. (laughs) He gave them their discipline. He showed them the error of their ways. And they responded. The people repent. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord had God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Now, they hadn't yet started putting like hammered or stone yet. They hadn't started cutting and laying, laying brick. I don't know how to build a temple. Uh, they hadn't started doing that yet. But they had repented. They had repented. And so God tells them, I am with you. He doesn't just tell them. He declares it to them through Haggai. I am with you. They hadn't started building yet, but God knows the heart. And he knows that out of a repentant heart comes repentant actions. He knows that out of a heart of worship comes comes worship in word and deed. And so the people repent. The people repent. And this is a good reminder This is a good reminder that it has always been about grace through faith and not of works. Obedience to the law and offering sacrifices properly were always supposed to be the informed fruits of a heart of worship, of of a heart seeking to glorify God by loving and obeying him. Acts of worship should never be separate from a heart of worship. In fact, in Malachi, and this is rough, I apologize, Uh, well, not too much because it's the word of God. In Malachi, God hates their sacrifices so much because of their hearts. He says, I'm going to rub the dung of your sacrifices on your faces. That's big. But it's not just that God demands to be worshipped. It's not just that God deserves to be worshipped and is worthy of worship. It is that we must. We were made for that. And doing anything else is apart from our purpose. We must. That is our water, as if we were fish. That's our air. That's our existence. That's our natural habitat, is worshiping God from the heart first. Constantly throughout the Old Testament, we see God rejecting sacrifices because of rotten heart attitudes. In the New Testament, we see our Lord condemn the Pharisees for their adherence to the law because of their rotten heart attitudes. We see the older, older brother and the younger brother. The younger brother acted the fool and came back in a time of drought, came back to his father, which the idea of coming back to his father was started by the drought. 
he came back to his father and was, and, and was found to be a son alive again. And the older brother who depended on his own righteousness and not the mercy of his father, cut off. <clears throat> there's no heart of, and when there's no heart of worship, there's no pleasing acts of worship. But for those who worship God in spirit and in truth, no matter how flawed, God is with them and there is blessing. Verse 14 says the people started working on the house of the Lord again. But verse 12 says that they obeyed. They obeyed by considering their ways. And upon consideration, they came to the conclusion that they would show reverence to the Lord. Smart move. Smart move. To bow the knee once again to the king of kings. Smart move. And we know it was legitimate because it came with change in behavior. It always goes that way. We learn something, we believe it, and it changes the way we act. We learn something, we believe it, and it changes the way we act. Uh, the uh, philosophers of old, whom we love to quote in Latin, uh, called it notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. You have a knowledge of something, you have a conviction that thing is true, um, and that results in fiducia. A faithful, out, a faithful living of that. Faithful living of that. You learn what a chair is. You believe that if you sit in the chair, you will, uh, you will be relieved of gravity on your feet. Um, and so you sit in the chair. Notitia, sensus, fiducia. Consider your ways. They know now. They know, well, they should have known before. They know why God is doing it what they have done wrong, and what they need to do different. They believe that God is absolutely to be worshipped and not to worship God is sinful and wrong and apart from our created purpose and yields nothing but greater thirst and greater longing. And so their life changes. They make a change. They leave their paneled houses during harvest season and they go up to the hills and they start building the temple. Praise God. But I want you, I want you to notice something real quick. Uh, maybe not real quick. Uh, it's a good phrase, so maybe not be real quick. Um, in the beginning of verse 14, it says, So the Lord stirred up the Spirit, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the remnant. God stirred up their spirit. This is beautiful. God's Spirit was with them. He told them he was with them. God's Spirit's always acting on his people, always acting on people to turn, to be stirred, to obey, to worship. His Spirit in us is doing the work. He is why and how we repent. He is why and how we believe for salvation and for sanctification. He is why and how we are going to be glorified someday. He is why and how we love and obey Jesus. Consider Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Both to will and to work. It is God at work in you, both to want to and to actually do it. The Holy Spirit works in us the similar, similar way as he worked in the people then. He stirred in their hearts. They heard the words of God. They believed it to be authoritative and true, and they changed their life because of what they had heard from the Word of God. Beautiful. 
Don't you love reading a story of the Israelites where it ends like this? Love that. Love that. So after so many cycles, judges and, and uh, prophets and kings, just cycle after cycle after cycle, these people are here and they're repentant. It took a while, but it's there. He stirs up the high priest. He stirs up the governor. He stirs up all the remnants, and they left their houses to build the house of the Lord. Now, we could leave this story in antiquity, uh, writing it off as Old Testament, therefore irrelevant, um, but I'm, I'm sure you know by now we, we can't do that, right? Right? We can't do that. What's true then uh, and is not true now is situational. Time, place, you know, at that time, the word of God was going to one people in one place, right? In one specific way to worship. God prescribed every aspect of their worship services. That's different now. The gospel has gone to all people everywhere. And there is so much freedom in how we do it. Why? Because God has fulfilled the law with its prescriptions for one people in one place at one time. The gospel is for all cultures, all people everywhere equally giving the spirit without measure all over the globe. And so if you go like, I, oh man, I loved church services in South Africa. I don't know if you guys knew this. My parents were missionaries in South Africa for about 10 years and their church services were a beautiful thing. I remember once we were in the, the village of Tegela Ferry, um, dirt roads all the way up there, round of old thatch roofs, pretty awesome. These believers just love Jesus. And the way they did their singing time, they just, they clapped and kept a beat and, a con- and someone in the congregation would feel stirred up and he'd start, they'd start leading a song. And everybody would join in and sing that song together. I love the freedom of expression there. I think it was my dad's first Easter preaching um, at an uh, Easter revival. And uh, they notified him. It's like, okay, so you have about four hours to preach. I hope that's all right with you. <laughs> when I heard that story, I was a little jealous. I could preach for four hours. I won't but I could. <laughs> but what hasn't changed between these two situations is God, the nature of worship and idolatry. Us, we're still people, and we still struggle with the same things. No temptation has overcome you except that which is common to man. Praise God that he is faithful and always provides a way out, right? Right? That also means, though, that uh, whenever we sin, we choose it. We're never forced to it. Those shackles of sin have been removed. So there's a little bit of roughness there. We are the ones that choose to eat the strawberry um, because we wanted it. The gospel we believe today is the same that Abraham believed. We're just on the other side of the cross in the empty tomb. They were looking forward to the promise of Jesus, trusting that he would keep, keep his promises and that he would bring that salvation, that he would extend that salvation to the whole world. And we look back at it knowing he has accomplished it. The core of this account translates beautifully to the current day through the cross where all of the Old Testament finds its completion. And what this means is idolatry is still the number one battle for us, isn't it? As we try to live for the eternal in the spiritual, as we try to set our eyes on Jesus and foc- not focus on the wind and the waves, we are constantly distracted. The wind and the waves are loud. The cares of the world are right in front of us. 
I mean, if that's not a 2020 message, I don't know what is. We could, we could put our, put our hope in things of the world where thieves can break in and rust and moth destroy. We could put our entire trust in the Lord God. We could worship something besides God, give it our affection, give it our resources, our time, our money, our focus, our care, our love. Or we could worship God. And as believers, we have been freed from the shackles of sin. We've been freed, so we can choose. Uh, and a believer will, will continue to grow. Uh, will continue to grow in their worship of God. <clears throat> Just like the people here, still God's people. And God is with them, helping them, just like he does us. Jesus promised he would never leave us nor forsake us. God tells the people here, they don't even have a temple. There's no holy of holies, but God is in their midst. God is still working in their hearts. So while they haven't built his temple yet, they've neglected his house, he's still there. Just like Jesus, a little homeless, <laughs> but absolutely in love with his people. God will never leave us nor forsake us. He will stir in our hearts and cause us to repent, to see our idolatry and to turn from it. To be like Josiah when he read the words of the law that he'd found and he realized we have an idol problem. We have an idol problem. So what did he do? He tore down the idols in their country. That is us. God stirs up in our hearts. We see our idols. We tear down the idol and turn back to proper worship of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Idolatry is still the number one battle. Even though the new temple is the church, the body of Christ, temple of the Holy Spirit, we use our gifts to build up uh, not the temple, but each other as that uh, temple of the Holy Spirit, that body of Christ, like Ephesians 4 tells us to to work for each other, 1 Peter 4.10 as well. Um, the new forever high priest and, uh, and Davidic king is Jesus Christ. Our acts of worship aren't constrained to the law, but we've been completely free to worship God in spirit and in truth. So, as uh, Romans 15.4 and 1 Corinthians 10.11 tell us, let's learn. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages has come. So, what's their example? What's the example for our instruction? What's the encouragement for our hope? Do not neglect obedience to God. Do not neglect obedience to God. even if it leads to poverty and hardship. Jesus taught us not to worry about clothes or food, but seek first, first. What part of their crop was supposed to be the sacrifice to God, the first and best, right? Your first and best needs to go to God. Give your first and best of your resources to obey God. Is obedience worth the suffering? Ask yourself, are you willing to suffer to obey his word? Ask yourself, what about when he tells us to lay down our God-given freedoms for the sake and sensibilities of another believer, even if they're wrong? What if he tells us to, to, to give to all who ask? 
What if he tells us to, uh, uh, to not even protect our own lives for the sake of the salvation of others? What is God telling you to do? Are you doing it? You are responsible for what you know God has told you to do. Consider your ways, church. We love those strawberries. <laughs> and as we turn to obey, it's really hard. But I love, love this next point. Practice repentance for the health of your soul. Don't neglect obedience to God and practice repentance for the health of your soul. Don't let it fester in the dark corners. When you fail, when you fail to obey God, when you're selfish, when you're prideful, when you're, uh, when you're faithless, um, when you lie, when you steal, you cheat, you're unkind, you slander somebody else, you gossip, repent. Don't let that thing fester. Don't let that thing be the, the, the little box of chow mein in the back of your fridge that's turning colors. Get that thing out. Get that thing out. Bring it to the light so it can be caught and shot by the Holy Spirit and the ministry of his word. Get that out of yourself. Why give the enemy any ground? You don't have to. He's not your master anymore. Get that out. Practice repentance for the good of your soul. Don't cover it. Don't make excuses for it. Don't try to justify your fears when there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember what Jesus did on the cross and the empty tomb. And remember the words in 1 John where he says, if you sin, confess it. Because God is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. Why is it faithful to forgive you? Why is it just to forgive you? Because of what Jesus has done on the cross and in the empty tomb. Justice has been satisfied. You have no fear of bringing your sin out before the Lord. You have no fear of that. The only result for a believer bringing their sin out is you get a little smaller and he gets a little bigger. The depth of our sin revealed to us the height of his grace. And as we practice daily repentance, we are practicing focusing on the gospel and turning our eyes to Jesus, regardless of the wind and the waves. Practice repentance for the health of your soul. God is so gracious. Think about the first day when sin entered the world. What happened that day? People committed the first sin and broke that special relationship between God the Father and his image bearers. And on that day, God killed the first animal to make them clothing and promised them the snake crusher would come. That is a God of grace and mercy. And he is the same now as he ever has been. Pull out your sin and lay it down at the altar, so, or not at the altar, at the feet of Jesus so it can be killed. Lay yourself on the altar because you are the sacrifice. But bring your sin out. Practice repentance for the health of your soul. Do you confess sins before the Lord or do you let them sit and fester until someone mentions confession before communion? The second one used to be me. Do you search your heart and life for unrighteousness? If you've ever seen an episode of Kitchen Nightmares, all these dirty kitchens, you know, Ramsey looks under the oven. He's like, when was the last time you cleaned that? He moves like one box. He's like, there's mold here. Just search your kitchen. Clean it. Move stuff. Please don't lift up the cushions and the couches in my house. <laughs> but that's what we ought to do to clean, right? In our hearts more than anything. Search the nook and crannies. Where are things going to be left out? Where is there still ground to be taken for the Lord in your heart? Consider your ways. 
Don't neglect obedience to God. Practice repentance for the health of your soul and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the most important facet of your existence and, and purpose. If you neglect the proper worship of God, you are declaring that something or someone else is more worthy. And what can compete with the glories of God? That is a pearl of great price we should sell everything to get. Do you esteem the Lord God above all else, including your own plans, desires, goals, opinions, or property? Consider your ways. Remember the gospel. Cling to it like the people of Israel did to the promise. Cling to the words of God as a message of life, even when they're condemning your actions and your heart attitudes. Remember there is no condemnation. This is a glorious process. A glorious process in which we get smaller and he gets bigger. A glorious process where the gospel then is in the forefront of our minds and the tips of our tongues because we are practicing it and remembering it and reminding ourselves that while we fail and fall down and eat that strawberry, we can't even walk 12 steps sometimes without eating that strawberry, but we're going to get a little farther next time because of his grace. We remember that he is cheering us on. He is that father ready. (laughs) Here's another strawberry, buddy. Try again. Here's another strawberry, buddy. Try again. Here's another strawberry, buddy. Try again. Good job. Here's another strawberry. (laughs) He is so good. I want to end with uh, a a devotion from one of my favorite devotional books, My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. Uh, This is from December, so if you get there, you'll read it again. I think it's December 3rd. Conviction of sin is best described in the words, My sins, my sins, my Savior, how sad they, how sad on thee they fall. Conviction of sin is one of the most uncommon things that ever happens to a person. It is the beginning of an understanding of God. Jesus Christ said that when the Holy Spirit came, he would convict people of sin. And when the Holy Spirit stirs a person's conscience and brings him into the presence of God, it is not that person's relationship with others that bothers him, but his relationship with God. Psalm 51.4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. The wonders of conviction of sin, forgiveness, and holiness are so interwoven that it is only the forgiven person who is truly holy. He proves he is forgiven by being the opposite of what he was previously by the grace of God. Repentance always brings a person to the point of saying, I have sinned. The surest sign that God is at work in his life is when he says that and means it. Anything less is simply sorrow for having made foolish mistakes, a reflex action caused by self-disgust. The entrance into the kingdom of God is through the sharp, sudden pains of repentance colliding with man's respectable goodness. Then the Holy Spirit, who produces these struggles, begins the formation of the Son of God in the person's life. This new life will reveal itself in conscious repentance followed by unconscious holiness, never the other way around. The foundation of Christianity is repentance. Strictly speaking, a person cannot repent when he chooses. Repentance is a gift of God. The old Puritans used to pray for the gift of tears. If you ever cease to understand the value of repentance, you allow yourself to remain in sin. Examine yourself to see if you have forgotten how to be truly repentant. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Let it change your mind. Let it change your heart. And let it change your actions. Be a Christian everything. 
Romans 12.1. We're a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice. Let him reign entirely. Don't go back to salt water. Don't go back to shackles. Walk in freedom. Enjoy the grace. It was costly for Jesus and it's free for us. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Let's pray. Lord, Father, God, I thank you so much for your grace. I thank you so much for your love for us. I thank you so much for this story that highlights our own condition as we try to worship you and get distracted, as we try to obey you and things come up. Whether rocks or weeds, there's stuff in our soil that you can take care of, Father God. And I pray we have the humility to come to you in repentance to allow you to take care of it. Please help us be good sheep, living the simple life of enjoying where you lead us. Sometimes you lead us in the pastures by the waters, and sometimes you lead us through the shadow of through the valley of the shadow of death, but regardless of where we're at, we are feasting when we are following you. And I pray, God, that we follow you more and better. And that we encourage others to follow you more and better. And that we love you and worship you more and better as we look less like us and more like your glorious Son, Jesus Christ. Help us practice repentance and remember your grace. Help us live different lives. I pray, God, that as we do this, we will truly be lighthouses in this dark world, showing people the way of rescue, showing people the way of danger, and showing people how they can be satisfied. Away from the salt water on the solid rock of Christ. We need you a lot, Father God, and it feels like increasingly, and that's appropriate and wise. We love you a lot. And please help us love you more. We want to worship you, God. Please help us with that. And I thank you in advance for helping because you are a God who keeps your promises and you said you would help. You said you would be there with us. You said you would continue to work on us. And I thank you for that, God. What a cause for celebration. What you accomplished on the cross and in the empty tomb is glorious. And I pray that we can't shut up about it to our own selves and to those around us. Help us make a difference. And as so many people are dying, I pray that we get that much more energetic about preaching the gospel so that none die without you. And if sinners be damned, let them let at least leap over our dead bodies. I pray, God, that we give up everything to do what you have called us to do in saving sinners. We love you, God. We need you in this. Help us be lighthouses. Amen.